At the core of our Christianity is servanthood. It's our identity as Christ in the world, that is to be Christ and to serve as Jesus did. Jesus was a servant. He told his disciples that he had come to the world not to be served, but to serve. And all that he did was in that vein to serve humanity. He would even say that the greatest of the disciples would be a servant. Matthew chapter 20, verse 26, should not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. That concept was really hard for the disciples to understand. It would have been hard for anybody in that world to understand. It was contrary to common practice. The teachings of Jesus in the kingdom of God, in essence, were almost contrary to the worldview of the time. And so Jesus had to teach this again and again, to model it again and again. And on this last day with his disciples, almost the very last thing that he does with them is to teach them this lesson in servanthood. And he modeled servanthood to them. He washed their feet. Verse 15, I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. 2,000 years later, we still need the lesson. 2,000 years later, it's still just as much a problem among humankind today as it was then. You see, we define success in the riches that we accumulate or the fame that we achieve or, or the power that we possess. The world wants to be rich and famous and powerful. Nobody aspires to be a servant. It's just not in our worldview. Few are happy if they see their life as one that is characterized as a servant. Not even in our love relationships with different ones do we like the idea of service. A lot of times when we define love, it's very self-serving. We love those things that make us feel good, or we love those things that gratify us, or we love those things that do something for us. Satan has stolen a basic part of the fingerprint of God that should be in us. He's replaced that line that should say service with success. Even people of faith have this problem. We all keep scorecards, I guess you could say. You know, I've visited this many people, or I've studied with this many people, or I've made this many visits, and we have this list of people we've converted or people we've helped. It's a scorecard of success. Not very many of us, probably, I don't guess I've ever heard any Christian actually say, that's my scorecard of Christianity. But actions sometimes show that, that we do it. Jesus said, the greatest among you will be your servant. I don't think that means that we keep a scorecard. A servant in the context when Jesus said this uh, 2,000 years ago, a servant was almost always a slave. The slave had no personal rights, no property. His life was lived completely at the service of his owner. The servant wasn't congratulated when he served well. He received no praise, no fame for doing his job right. 
It was what was expected of him, and if he didn't do it, then he was punished or beaten or sometimes even killed. The idea of a true child of God being a servant was hard for them to understand then, just like it is today. But it is still a fundamental part of our Christian fingerprint. Now, the world tells us that we need to be successful. We probably have even told our kids this as they were growing up. The worldview is you need to be successful regardless. And there are a lot of folks that would say be successful regardless of the cost or regardless of whatever you have to do to reach that by whatever means. And so in our world today, there's lying and cheating and dishonesty and unethical practices to achieve success. We don't want to be at the bottom of the chain serving others all of our lives. We'd rather be at the top of the chain and somebody else serving us. But that's not the teaching of Jesus. That need to be in our fingerprint. One time Jesus was visited by a rich young ruler. It's found in three of the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Through the ruler's success, Satan had stolen God's fingerprint from his life. Remember, he comes to Jesus and says, Good master, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, Well, why do you call me good? There's only one good, the Father. So the conversation proceeds. He seems to have had everything going for him. Rich young ruler. Ruler probably meant that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. That would mean that he had some prestige. It would mean that he knew the right people in Jerusalem that he had a position of wealth. Maybe his money came from his own business since. Since he's called young, it probably meant that he inherited it. It was from his family. So he was from a a line of people who were rich and powerful. He affirmed his faithfulness to Moses. He kept the law from his youth. So not only was he well-off financially, he was well-off spiritually, or at least he thought he was, and well-off in the religious circle there. He was a successful guy, and everything going for him. We would almost say, well, he didn't lack anything. But Jesus said, if you want to be really good, you want to be righteous, Then divest yourself of all of your fortunes and follow me. Well, he went away, sad. His life and his lifestyle and his positions in the community apparently was more important to him than following Jesus. More important to him than being perfect. And so he left sad. You see, serving others rather than being served was too high a price for him to pay. Being poor isn't necessary to serve. In fact, being poor isn't really a requirement for being a Christian. There are a lot of rich people that followed Jesus, and many of them, Jesus didn't say, you've got to sell everything and follow me. You don't have to take a vow of poverty. There were rich followers. Lazarus was apparently a very wealthy man, as well as Mary and Martha. The difference, I believe, was that Jesus could see the heart, and anything that stood between them and God had to be removed. Anything that kept them from serving one another had to be removed. And so Jesus looked at the young man and he says, you've got to get rid of all of that prestige, all of that money, all of that power, and come and follow me. Success in the life of the rich young ruler had kept him from serving. So Jesus tells him that he's lost a fundamental part of what it means to serve God. He needs to get rid of those encumbrances. The story is told 
uh, about an incident during the Revolutionary War where some soldiers were preparing a, a defensive barrier and a horseman rides by in civilian clothing. He hears the leader of the soldiers demanding orders, do this, do that, but he's just watching. He's not helping. The rider asks, well, why aren't you helping? And the leader's response, well, why am I corporal? I shouldn't be expected to. The stranger apologized for for not recognizing that, and he dismounts, and he helps finish building the, the barrier. And then he turns to the corporal, Mr. Corporal, the next time you have a job like this, and not enough men to finish it, just call your commander-in-chief. I'll come back, and I'll help you again. It was George Washington. Now, whether it's a true story or not, I don't know. But it is very, very like us. When we have some sense of position, we oftentimes do not want to work in a way that we think might infringe upon our position or our glory or our rights or, well, whatever it is that's got us on this pedestal. Pride keeps us from service. And unfortunately, this world is filled with an awful lot of prideful people, proud of their position, their success, and unwilling to bend their knees in service to someone else. We believe we're too important for menial tasks. Nobody should ask us to do that. Why? That's for somebody else without the same level of education or without the same bank account or who's not driving the same type of car as us. And the fingerprint of God is scarred. It's not in us anymore because of our arrogance in our success. Our identity as a child of God is firmly rooted in who God is and who we are in Him. Remember Jesus, He is called the Son of God, the only beloved Son of God. John begins his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 14, by saying, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The only Son. When Jesus goes to John the baptizer and is baptized there in the River Jordan, a dove descends from the sky, and there is a voice from the heavens that says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus understood who he was. He's the Son of God. A firm knowledge in who he was gave him the self-confidence in his life that he was not swayed by any temptation from Satan to gain some position or some authority or some fame. He was not encumbered by a desire to achieve some worldly success. He did not use his divine power to gain earthly power or fortune, or fame. He didn't need to. He knew who he was and was willing to serve others from that place, that identity in God the Father. He did not demand that others serve him. He even would say, the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. He's master of the universe. He holds the world together, and he came to serve, not be served. Just a few hours before the crucifixion, he's there in the upper room in Jerusalem with his disciples, there to celebrate the Jewish Passover feast. It's their celebration from freedom from slavery. They've been slaves in Egypt. Now they are free, and this 
Passover was given to them as a memorial to remember they are free because of God, not slaves anymore. It's during that celebration of the Passover feast that Jesus introduced the celebration we have, freedom from sin, the the Lord's Supper. In the preparations for that event, the water was there, there was a basin there, walking everywhere you went, that culture had the custom then of washing their feet when they went in to get the road off of their feet. But no one had served that evening. No one had volunteered to serve the others. They didn't have a slave with them. They didn't have a servant there paid to take care of that menial task. And so nobody did it. And it looks like nobody even washed their own feet. If nobody's going to wash my feet, they'll just stay dirty, apparently was the mindset. So during the feast, Jesus served. He took the basin, filled it with water, and began washing the disciples' feet. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, and you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So what had Jesus done? Well, sometimes the obvious answer is the correct answer. In fact, usually, and he had washed their feet. And there are some that do this today. But sometimes I believe that the answer is a little deeper, a little more profound than the obvious. Jesus had washed their feet, but what he had really done was serve them. And he had given them an example of serving one another. Sometimes that might mean washing feet, but sometimes that might mean many other things. The master of the universe, the divine son of God, the Messiah, their Lord and teacher could still wash their feet and did. Service did not diminish his divinity. Stooping before the disciples did not mean he was no longer their teacher nor their Lord. But they had thought, apparently, that if they stooped to serve one another, they might lose position, lose clout, lose their ability to maybe lord it over each other. So they weren't willing to serve. Disciples are not greater than their master. Disciples can serve like Jesus served. In fact, disciples must serve like Jesus served. The divine fingerprint in us is not measured by our earthly success. One line of the divine fingerprint in us must read, servant to all. A servant like Jesus. A servant not overwhelmed with arrogance or pride or conceit. The Lord said, if you understand this, then you're blessed. If we understand that part of who we are means that we serve one another and we serve this world as Christ, now we are blessed. So we must never confuse power with greatness. The world does. Our nation does. Virtually all nations do. All cultures confuse power with greatness. But we who sit in history's bleachers are, we're inclined to confuse fame and fortune and power. 
And we want that. We think somehow that will make us superior. You see, the media, social media, it tells us that. And we believe it. And the television, it tells us that. And we believe it. We need to remember that the society we live in is still controlled by Satan, not by God. Prominence is not a very good yardstick with which to measure greatness or how close we may be to God. To know greatness, remove the wealth, remove the newspaper clippings, the fame. Now what's left? If there's nothing left and there wasn't really anything there to begin with other than deception. Without the pedestal from the world's standards, there's an awful lot of people that we think of as great who wouldn't be very tall at all. There are an awful lot of people that receive a lot of attention that if we remove just a couple of things, well, they wouldn't be tall at all. They wouldn't get any accolades at all. True greatness is an issue of character. Great character is God's divine imprint on us, the image of God in us. Our fingerprint must show faith and love and honesty and purity and service to one another. First Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is what a child of God does. This is how a Christian lives, how he loves. This is how we love one another. We overlook shortcomings and sins in each other, and we show hospitality with love, not grumbling, and we serve each other. We use whatever gift we have to serve each other, be it our money, our grace, our knowledge, our, our strength, whatever God has given to us, we use that in service to one another. So look at your fingers. Is God there? Look at the lines in your fingerprints. Is service one of the lines? There's countless ways that we can serve. This week is who's and halos. There are people in this community that need to hear the word of God. Our kids just came back from a mission trip in Houston. There are opportunities everywhere we turn. Ways to serve God and serve one another. You know, most of the ways that we serve in this world are not organized activities. It's being kind to your neighbor or to someone in need. It's helping that person who well, needs somebody to take them to a doctor or needs somebody to buy some medicine for them day after day, countless opportunities. I'm afraid a lot of times we don't see those, however, because we have our eyes shut to service. We only see those things that will help us be bigger, grander, more important rather than those things that will serve one another. There's so many dirty feet in this world. Feet that need someone to stoop and wash those feet. The love of God. Service is best when it doesn't call attention to itself. Maybe that's why we don't talk about it as much, because we're, why it's not done as much, because true service doesn't call attention to itself. Jesus would say that if we're serving to call attention to ourselves, well, then that attention is our reward. You've received your reward if you're doing it just to be seen. It's only natural to be appreciated. It's only natural to want someone to say thank you. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Or he also says in Luke 6, verse 32, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even the sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Don't serve to receive recognition. Serve because that's what Christians do. Serve because Jesus did that. Serve because it's part of who you are, your fingerprint. Jesus could do this because he was confident in who he was. He knew who he was. He's the son of God. Service did not change that. When he was baptized, God spoke, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He was confident in his unique relationship with God. He knew from the beginning. He had been the Word, God's Word. He became flesh, full of grace and truth. He was God's one and only Son. You and I have been created in the image of God. Part of that image is that there's a sense of the divine in us and that we were pure when we were born. We have the ability to think, to reason, and we have a soul in us that will not die. But that has been tarnished by sin. Sin has destroyed some of that relationship that we had with God. And so we still need to ask that question, are we, can we live, can we serve out of a sense of true sonship? Are we children of God? Our God has provided a way for us to become His children. Our God provides a way so that we can be His child. The apostles tell us that when we become Christians, we are adopted now children of God and have all the rights, all of the privileges, as even Jesus. He is our brother now. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Imagine that. We are children, heirs, along with Jesus. Our inheritance is heaven. We will live in the mansion with God. Live and serve in this world from a position of greatness in that you are a child of God. That's who we are, child of God. And so we can serve one another. That doesn't diminish the position we have in God. That doesn't remove us from being His child. So have you been adopted? Have you become now renewing your relationship with God? Have you been adopted, redeemed by Jesus? Is your name written in the book of life? God has a list of all of His children. Is your name in that book? Do you have your adoption papers? We'll sing a song in a moment. The water's ready. There are clothes. There's towels. You can be baptized into Christ today for the remission of your sins. You can be adopted. You can be a child of God. And then you can serve from that position in God.